I want to also say uh, welcome to those of you who are joining online. It's good to have you be a part of uh, Freedom Online. If you can't be in the room, we're so glad that you can take part in that way. That was a powerful song uh, that concluded worship. Resurrection is fundamental to our faith, isn't it? And that's what that song is all about, that we serve the God of resurrection power. I think sometimes we sing words like that or we, we listen to a song like that and maybe feel a bit of a disconnect. We have become so uh, trained, socialized, and sort of dumbed down to think only in terms of what science could explain, what logic and ration could explain. And rational thought can't explain a God of resurrection power. A God who looks at an impossible situation and says, completely possible. In fact, it's beyond doable. It's done. Who looks at terminal illness and just says, wholeness, total healing, bam, it's done. Who looks at death and says, no, I speak life. Who looks at at a dead relationship and says, I call it back to life. That's the God we serve. Somehow we've got to learn to lay aside all of the, the expectations that have been dumbed down to just what we could fix or what the doctor could fix or what the counselor could do and learn to put our trust once again in the God of resurrection power. Don't you want to meet him today? Don't you want him to just breathe in this place today, to just breathe into your circumstance, the stuff that has just gotten so old? Is there anything in your life you're just sick to death of? Anybody? Anybody just sick to death of some part of your life that you'd love to just shake it off and have life breathed into that again? The power of God transformed that. Anybody need that today? It's available He's, he is breathing, He is moving, and today He wants to bring life into your circumstance. This season we are in a series right now. We're in the book of Daniel. If you've got your Bible and you want to go ahead and be turning there, you can move uh, toward Daniel 3. It's he's entitled, Unshakable. It's about learning to walk with God in a way so that whatever life throws at you that seems impossible, that seems just... Just disgusting or frustrating or overwhelming that you don't just survive it that you thrive in spite of that because of the power of God working victoriously in you and through you and what we're looking at in Daniel is a series of tests that everybody has to go through that become an opportunity for us to experience more of the power of God and that really position us for greater levels of responsibility and for God to really prosper us in, in ways that he wants to. This isn't some name it and claim it version of the gospel, but it is the reality of, of Scripture brought to life in the 21st century that God does want to bless his people in ways that allow us to have greater influence in the world around us. But before that happens, he consistently puts us through different kinds of tests we're saying again and again God is going to stress you before he's going to bless you because he wants to make sure that the man or woman who emerges from that test is somebody that can be relied on somebody who is going to handle the responsibility appropriately and so he's going to let us go through some difficult things preparing us for the next level and so we see in the book of Daniel nine major tests that we're all going to go through we've already been through four of those in this study and today we're going to look at number five of these nine, seven of them were things that Daniel had to go through. 
One of them that we'll look at next week, the king himself had to go through. It is, it is the test of success and how you deal with that. But today uh, is a test that uh, Daniel himself doesn't model for us, but his three friends had to go through. And so we're going to look together at uh, what God did in their lives, beginning in verse 1 of Daniel 3, where we read, and again, just to quickly set the stage, if you haven't been with us the last month, Daniel and his three friends uh, lived in a time when the Babylonians, the greatest empire on earth at the time, had conquered Israel along with a lot of other nations, uh, had carried the Jewish people, 25% of them, uh, the, the best and the brightest, the strongest, and and the the really the most promising lives had been carried away to Babylon, put through a training program to serve the king there in Babylon. And so where we pick up the story today is 15 years after what we looked at last week. The first chapter comprises their first three years where they're put through this training program, what we saw last week, where Daniel and his friends were almost put to death because of this great drama surrounding the king and his dreams that no one could interpret. And now it's been about 15 years since that drama. And so now uh, Daniel and his three friends are in their early to mid-30s. They've been in the uh, Babylonian kingdom for about 20 years. And apparently, the scripture doesn't say this, but it's pretty apparent from the story that Daniel is out of the country when all of this unfolds. Otherwise, he would have been front and center in this whole controversy. He's probably in some other country on the king's business. And so the focus is now drawn into Daniel's three friends. In in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, we read, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Now, the last thing that we just read about Nebuchadnezzar was how 15 years earlier he had come to see that the God of Daniel was the one true living God, but like a lot of us, he had a short memory and a big ego. And with the passing of time, 15 years have passed, and God gets smaller in his mind, and he gets bigger in his own mind. And so he builds this statue that many believe is a statue made in his own image, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is modern-day Iraq. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Basically, everybody who is anybody is called together for the big dedication and presentation of the huge statue. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. And then they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had stood up, and a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So now the stage is set. You feel the drama, the tension beginning to build. Because Nebuchadnezzar has come up with this idea that certainly is driven uh, to a large extent by ego. But there's also a very practical concern that's probably driving part of what Nebuchadnezzar has done. Remember, he's the most powerful man on earth. He rules the largest kingdom on earth. This is the kingdom. It's not just in what is today Iraq. It stretches far to the east into what is today India, covering 
Pakistan and Iran, Iraq, um, pretty much all of the Middle East, think, you know, Saudi Arabia, Jerusalem, uh, uh, Israel, uh, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, all of these areas, up into Turkey. So it's a vast kingdom with many different people groups, all different kinds of religions and languages. And so imagine trying to pull all these people together as one nation. It's easy to understand how his advisors would have said to him, if you will have one religion... And one God that you control, if you can create some great figure that becomes our God, and if you declare that everyone has to have a common faith, that will pull the people together as one nation where they have been so many nations. So this is a central part of his plan, not just of saying, look at how great I am, but of wanting to unite his kingdom. So it's a big deal, and there can't be any margin for error here. Everyone has to take part. Everyone has to be willing to join in worship this one God that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And so he gives the decree that everyone at the sound of the music is to bow down and worship. And if you don't do that, you're going to be immediately put to death. Now, this is not in your notes, but for no extra charge, I'm just going to point out to you three ways that this story really feels like life today when you stop and think about it. This is 2,500 years ago. But think about three things that you see in this story that feel a lot like how life is today. First of all, you notice that the world still creates larger-than-life images that we're invited to worship. We just don't make them out of gold and stick them out in the desert. But we still make larger-than-life images that, that really draw us in a way that almost encourages us to worship them. We, we don't make them out of gold. We put them on big screens, don't we? Today, it's musicians and athletes and uh, stars of, of TV and, and movies. And now it's Internet stars. And, and we see things in their lives, their, their wealth and their influence, their popularity and their, their beauty and their sexuality, and, and we want to imitate what they've got. And so we're, we're drawn toward these larger-than-life images. And I'll tell you a second thing that, that looks in this story like life today, and that is that we're tempted to create false images of ourselves to impress others the same way that Nebuchadnezzar did. No, we don't make them out of gold. But if there's one thing that allows us to do this so effectively today above everything else, it's got to be social media. Have you noticed how we do that? How we project the best image of ourselves. I mean, don't you know... The, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar made, if it were indeed a statue of him, don't you know it was the best side of him? It, it had to be an image of him in his prime. It, it didn't have a pot belly to it. It, it didn't accent his, his wrinkles and his bad side. You know it was the best version of the king. We do that all the time on social media, don't we? Do you ever? I'm not a social media person, but Jackie keeps me in touch with the world by showing me and telling me what's going on in people's lives, and she, she'll show me the, the fun stuff on on uh, Facebook. And I'm amused to see how, with our pictures, we will present the best side of ourselves and of our lives. You know what I'm talking about? It cracks me up, ladies. Would somebody please explain explain to me the whole thing with the duck face? What? Why on earth young women feel the need to post dozens of pictures of themselves going, <laughs> cheeks sucked in, lips poked out. Unless you have webbed feet and you quack, you should not make that face. And yet women want to post all of these pictures. Look, my face is skinnier than real life. My body is 
skinnier than real life. And you know, people that post all these pictures, look at me in my bikini. Look at me with my boyfriend and with my girlfriend. Look at me in this cool place. Look at me while I'm eating this meal. And what's up with all the food? Well, I think we've created a new sin. It's food porn. You know, we just <laughs> envy me while I eat dessert. It, it's just weird how we need to project this image of my life is so great. Don't you wish you looked like me? Don't you wish you could go the places that I go? We try and project images of ourselves that aren't really even accurate. A third thing that you notice that sounds like today is, is that if I reject the world's idols and ideals, people will want to burn me. Which is exactly what's been threatened here. You reject the king's idol, you're going to go in the furnace. Well, you, you reject the world's idols and ideals... People aren't going to like it. There's just going to be certain people who cannot stand that about you. Well, that's what's going on in this story. So let's pick the story back up. Verse 8. It says, Some Chaldeans took the occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, here's the problem. There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to this day. Every time I read those names, I'm reminded of the, the little uh, elementary age school Sunday school child who referred to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Don't you know they've been waiting for years for an opportunity like this? These foreigners can't stand foreigners. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? These foreigners come in here trying to run our country. Everybody knows a foreigner can't run Babylonia. What are they doing? They don't have any business being in office. Everybody knows those foreigners need to come back, go back to where they came from. Sounds like half the people I know today. Yeah, it got uncomfortably silent there. Yeah, we, we found an opportunity to put those foreigners in their place. That's what these pagans are saying. These Jews, you can't trust a Jew. That's how they are. Some things had not changed in 2,500 years. People are just as prejudiced. People are just looking for opportunities to hurt others. And they look for the things that we can use to to say, we're different from you. You're not like us. And so these Chaldeans, these true Babylonians, "Ah, here's our opportunity to get those stinking Jews out of office. They never should have been put over us to begin with. You see, King, all along they've just pretended to be faithful to you. But now we see their true colors. You've got to deal with them. You may ask yourself, well, why would these three guys, why, why would they take such a stand? Why not just go through the motions and in your heart say, Lord, you know you're my God and I only surrender my life to you. I am not worshiping this idol. I'm just going to bend over and get on the ground, but I, it's just silliness. It doesn't mean anything to me. If the truth be told, there are a bunch of us who probably think if your life was on the line, if somebody said, if you don't bow down and worship this idol, if you don't get on the ground when the music plays, you know, I'm going to shoot you in the head. You're going to be dead today if you don't do this thing. There are a lot of us who probably are thinking, well, I'd probably just pretend like I'm worshiping, but God would know my heart and I'm not really worshiping. Why didn't these guys just do that? Because they understood that this mattered. 
that, that it matters whether or not you just join in with what the rest of the crowd is doing. It matters whether or not you, you outwardly acknowledge something else as if it were your God. They understood that this would be violating the commandments of God. That there is to be no other God before the one true God. And that you're not to make any image like this that's to be worshipped. They also understood this is why we are where we are. For generations, God had been warning his people, if you don't get rid of this idolatry in your lives, I'm going to ship you off. You will live in exile. And now they are living with the punishment that comes with that. And they are saying very clearly, we are never going back to that. We have learned our lesson in this. We are not going to bow down to another God. So, what's going to happen? Well, let's pick up the story. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I've set up? Now, we don't know this for sure, but I really do believe when I read the story, it says that Nebuchadnezzar is angry, but I think that he's angry with the situation more than he's angry with the three young men at this point. Because they have served him faithfully, and God's hand of blessing has been upon them. And as a king, you know he has to be so grateful that he's got these guys serving under him, Daniel and these three men. And it's got to be grieving him that he's suddenly confronted with a situation where he's made a decree, the punishment that he's going to hand down if they don't worship his God. And yet, he doesn't want to kill these guys. I mean, what leader wants to take three of his best subordinates and get rid of them? And so you... You've, Sense that he's like hopeful that they're going to wise up and, and join in what he's saying to do. Verse 15. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I've made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? It's essentially him saying, you better wake up to the reality of what you're facing here, guys. I'm going to give you another chance. Most kings would have just said, off with their heads, into the furnace. If they're not going to do what I say, they don't get a second chance. But you can tell Nebuchadnezzar is giving them another opportunity. Guys, maybe you didn't fully understand. Because he knows. These guys don't want to do this because they say they serve the one true God. We had this whole conversation 15 years ago. I remember agreeing with them 15 years ago about their one God being the true God. But guys, we're fixing to find out something here. We're going to find out whether this one true God is really such a big bad God. Because I've given the decree. And whether I like it or not, you guys are going into the fire if you don't do what I've told everybody else to do. So please bow down when you hear the sound of the music. I'm giving you another chance. What would you do in that situation? Would you bow or would you refuse? And he concludes with a great question. What God could possibly save in this circumstance? You understand, don't you guys? This is an impossible situation. Do you actually expect that God would intervene? I mean, has anyone in the history of the world ever gone into a fiery furnace and emerged unharmed? At this point, apparently not. So you realize, guys, you can't expect your God to do that, can you? How will they respond? Well, it's a great, great picture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. And then this is just the icing on the cake. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Somebody say amen. Praise God for men and women who are willing to face the test, who are willing to face the music, and who say, I believe God is able. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow. We are not going to change our course. We will live with character and integrity. Praise God. It doesn't take an army, just one or two or three, who are willing to stand, who will not bow. It's a great picture. So what I want to do with the time we have left is just two things. First of all, I want to ask and answer the question from Scripture. When you and I feel the heat, when we feel the pressure in our lives, how are we supposed to respond? What can we learn from these guys' examples as to how we respond? And then secondly, how is God going to respond when we're in these circumstances? Do you have circumstances in your life from time to time where you feel the heat? Where you feel the pressure? Well, sure, we all do. Man, when we were in school, we all felt it, didn't we? All kinds of pressure pushing us in the wrong direction. Trying to persuade us to, to not live for Christ. A lot of you, you feel that in the work environment. You feel pressure in relationships to do things that you know don't line up with who God's made you to be. When the pressure's on in your life and you feel the heat, what are you supposed to do? Three simple things that we learn from these three young men. And the first one is this. I don't need to worry about defending myself when the heat is on. And it's actually a trap to go down the road of defending yourself. And it's the most instinctive thing for us to do, isn't it? When you feel the pressure, you feel the heat, they're coming after you. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose this relationship. You're going to go under financially if you don't do something. We feel the need to defend ourselves. And the first thing that these three young men said is, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. We need to remember that God is a much better firefighter than any one of us. And when the heat is on, you let him be the firefighter. You let him be the one to guard your back. Isaiah 52.12 says, The Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. That passage came to life for me in such a big way in a couple of different circumstances I've been through in my adult life. Six or seven years ago when I was going through the darkest season of my life, I discovered that one of the most painful sides of that was how people will, in the absence of knowing the facts of a situation, they'll just make up their own version of reality. They'll just, if they don't know your, the truth of your circumstance, they'll just make up a story that seems to fit the situation. And then it'll just get told again and again and again. And I went through a long season where I can't tell you how many times people who knew me well enough to be comfortable to do this would come up to me and say, well, have you heard the latest story about yourself? To which I would always go, no, I haven't heard the latest. 
you know, over and over people would laugh and say, well, here's the, here's the last thing I've heard. And it would just be crazy stuff. And I will just say as an aside, when we're tempted to do that, we can all laugh together in those moments, but the person who's having to listen to that doesn't enjoy it. That, that's unpleasant to hear the rumors, even when they're absurd rumors. And each time you, you hear these kinds of crazy things, I'd be tempted to want to go, well, who said that? I need, to go, I need to go squash that. I need to go address that. And every time the Holy Spirit would go, leave it alone. You let me be your rear guard. You just live your life. And let your example speak for itself. You let me be your protector. If you start stepping in here trying to defend yourself, you're going to make a mess of it. And you're going to get the focus off of me and onto you trying to defend yourself. So you don't worry about defending yourself. I'll tell you, as I think about this issue, I'm reminded of a, a situation 19 years ago. I was, uh, I was serving in a larger church in this area as a student pastor. And the church went through a really painful experience where the church was split. A lot of the leaders of the church had been uh, privy to the split that was going to take place. And one of the senior staff leaders was a part of that whole plan. The rest of us on staff had no idea what was taking place. So on the day that the church was split, we were shocked by the whole thing. And there was a just kind of a lynch mob mentality among some of the remaining leadership of the church who were left out. So you got hundreds of people going out in this split that had been planned. And then a bunch of us who were not a part of that. And then it just it turned really, really ugly. And some of the leadership of that group that had split off, actually their senior leader, came back and met with me twice over the next three days to say, hey, we need you to go with us. Because we believe that, that you would help to make this successful. You'd bring people with you. We want you to be a part of that. And that was really confusing because, you know, there's that whole spiritual thing. Of, we prayed about it. And we feel like God wants you to do this. And I'm thinking, that all sounds good. But I don't know what God's saying in this because I was so caught off guard by it. And as I prayed about it, I just had to immediately turn around and say, I'm sorry, I can't go. Because I've seen how many times lies and deception have been a part of of this whole process. And I just don't feel like I can be a part of that. It doesn't make me better than anybody else. I just, I don't feel okay with taking part in that. And so as a reward for not taking part in that, the leadership that went turned and said to their people, we had told you that Mark was going to come and be a part of, of the staff of the new church. But we're sorry, our budget didn't allow for that. So, unfortunately, we had to leave him out. So people are coming to me, seeing me on the street going, Oh, we sure were sorry to hear you're not going to be, get to be a part of our new church, that we didn't have enough money to bring you on board. And, you know, part of you wants to go, Can I tell you the true story? And again, the Holy Spirit goes, No, don't, don't, don't start defending yourself or explaining yourself. In that. And part of the real beauty of this situation is... The leadership that left knew, oh, by the way, you're being left behind with some people who love you and some other people who hate you. Because there's some core leadership here that you know have never liked you. And really, in this process where I ended up having to preach more, really learned to like me a whole lot less. In fact, some of the deacons who really, really didn't like me, and please don't be offended by this, but sometimes you just need to put the real face on it. They would refer to me as the nigger lover on our church staff. 
Yeah, racism is still alive and well in the South, and it exists in the church, unfortunately, and God hates it. And so there's the beautiful picture of being one of the ones who remained in an environment where some people are going, we would love to fire you on the spot, and we're going to do whatever it takes to, to get rid of you here. And once again, you just want to defend yourself, and God says, nope. You just love these people and lead these people, and you leave it to me to defend yourself. And he did. He consistently did. And he did a better job than I could have done, and I promise you in your situation, he'll do the same. When you feel the fire, when you feel the pressure, when you feel under attack, and your character and your name are under attack, you don't give in to the temptation to make it about you and and to defend yourself. Number two, believe that God will protect and save me. No matter what kind of mess you're in, God has the power to save you. And these three understood it. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Somebody say, He is able. He is able to save us. I want you to turn to your neighbor and you just tell them to their face, he is able to save you from whatever you face. That is a fact. He is able, but we need to go a step further. They went on to say, and he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Don't you love that? They're still respectful, but they're going to say it straight. We serve a God. He is able to save us, and he will save us. By the way, what's the difference between God is able and God will? There's a big difference, isn't there? It's the difference between saying, well, I know God has got all this power out there, but I have no earthly idea whether he'd use any of it on me. It's the difference between wishing something good would happen and having the faith to usher it in. And how do you get from able, in your, I mean in your own heart and mind, how do you get from, I know God is able, to I know God will? Because that's the dilemma, isn't it? That's the dilemma of faith. Somebody in your, fa- in your family is diagnosed with a terrible illness. You know God is able, but how do you know God will? Because the difference between a prayer of, God, you're able, to the prayer of faith that says, God, I I believe you will, is the difference between seeing things shaken in heaven and on earth and seeing nothing but just words thrown up at the ceiling. How do you get from able to he will? You've got to hear what God says about it. It's that simple. You don't get to make it up. And a lot of people turn it into, well, you just find a verse of Scripture. And you just claim it in Jesus' name. Good luck with that. It doesn't work. You don't get to arbitrarily just dip and skip through the Scripture and find something that you think should apply, and you slap it on your situation, and then you hold God to that. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign, and He can do what He wants. The good news is, He is a loving, gracious sovereign. We're His children. And he absolutely loves to pour out what we need, but we don't get to make up what we want him to do and then make him do it just because we found a verse that we think applies. This is where we go to God and say, Lord, I know you're able, but I want to know your heart and your plan. Help me to understand what it is you want to do in my situation. Because at the end of the day, I want you to get glory in my life. And by the way, can we agree? 
God can get glory in life. He can get glory in prosperity. He can get glory in suffering. He can get glory in sickness. And he can get glory in death. And he's still a faithful God. And that scares us. Because it's, it's much easier to want to embrace the name it and claim it version of the gospel where it's like, God wants us always to be healthy and wealthy and wise and have lots of money in the bank. Jesus gets the biggest glory in all of that, doesn't he? God got the most glory when his son suffered and died. So God can get glory in all kinds of ways that this works out. God could have gotten glory through these three young men saying, we will not bow. We will serve the one true God. They could have gone into the fire and been consumed. And God could have been glorified even in their sacrifice. But God apparently had already spoken on the matter. God had already given them a glimpse of the fact that he wanted to demonstrate his power to save and to deliver. And so they said, we believe that God is able and we believe that he will. But we want to let you know, O king, even if he doesn't, we're going to go in believing. And we're going to stay faithful to him. But a big part of getting from God is able to I believe God will is knowing the promises of God. Not because we get to randomly apply them wherever we want to, but because so much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in revealing the thoughts and the plans of God to us is what Jesus said in John 14, is that the Holy Spirit will remind us of the Word of God. He will remind us of what the Lord said in His Word And there are more than 7,000 promises from God in his word. And the more of the word that we have in us, the more we'll be tuned in to what the voice of the Holy Spirit says and recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit. So that when he says something like a reminder of Isaiah 43, 2 and 3, and, and this is the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit will whisper to you in a time of distress. When you go through deep waters. Everybody say when. It ain't no if. It's when. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. There's good news and scary news all in those two verses, isn't there? A lot of winds, a lot of struggles. When you go through the deep waters, you will go through deep waters. When you go through rivers of difficulty. How many of you have been through rivers of difficulty in your life already? Show me your hands. Yeah, me too. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will walk through seasons of oppression. It's going to come. Being a follower of Jesus does not get us out of those things. But he says, here's the good news. I will be with you. You will not drown. You will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. It's good news and scary news all rolled together. Some tough stuff's going to happen. As I was reading and and just reflecting on that passage this week, I was reminded of my oldest daughter, Whitney. Whitney is a a newlywed and an uh, elementary school teacher in public schools in uh, Colorado Springs. And uh, when she graduated from college several years ago, uh, she, she just has been one of those that since she was a middle schooler, she just wanted to... Serve the Lord wherever she could could serve the Lord. She loves the thought of living on the mission field. And uh, when she was about to graduate from college, she shared with me, she's like, Dad, actually in the year leading up to her graduation, she said, Dad, I know this is going to sound weird, but I feel like the Lord's telling me when I graduate I'm supposed to move to Colorado Springs. I said, well, that's, that's neat, kind of odd. 
what's in Colorado Springs? And she's like, I have no earthly idea. I don't know anybody in Colorado Springs. And I don't have a job in Colorado Springs. But I feel like the Lord's telling me I'm supposed to go to Colorado Springs. So Whitney's the kind of person, when she graduated from college, she loaded up her U-Haul and she went to Colorado Springs and looked for a job. And, and she's been out there ever since. And as it turns out, she met the man that she was to marry and started teaching in a first grade uh, in a public school there. And she loved it. She loved getting to teach school. But she was a teacher in a very small, uh, it was a charter school. Uh, it's a public school, but it's a little bit of a different situation and a, a, a much smaller than normal school. And she got along well with her students and the parents of her students and with the other teachers. She really loved who she was working with. But it's a, an unusual environment. There's only really one administrator that was over her in that school. And uh, it was a principal. And for whatever reason, she said from early on, she's like, I don't know what the deal is, but I can tell my principal does not like me. And I, I can't quite figure this thing out. And as time passed, things just went down, down, down. And, and I mean, things just began to be increasingly hostile year by year. And she's like, I love everything else about my job. I, my students are doing well. When we do the this, you know, test at the beginning of the year and the end of the year, the standardized stuff, my, my students are really learning a lot. They're growing. The scores are, are reflecting that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a teacher. And I love everything about this except my principal really hates me. Well, the, the further it got into this, it became increasingly clear. Her principal was not a believer, and Whitney's very open about her faith. She's not one to ram it down your throat, but she's very open about who she is in the Lord. And It got to the point, she's like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job just because of this deal with my principal. And I, I've gone in and I've sat down with her and said, I, please help me to understand if I've, if I've done something wrong or if I've hurt you or offended you, I want to make it right. Please tell me what it is. And she's like, my principal doesn't make any bones about it. She didn't want anything made right. She wants me gone. And she's like... I can't find out from her anything professionally that's wrong. She doesn't like me. And the, the further this got, the more you just realized she really doesn't like who you are and what you represent. And it's more comfortable for her to just get you out of here. And so sure enough, last fall, as they started the new year, a new school year, enrollment was down. And it became increasingly clear that they were going to eliminate some classes, including a first grade class. And even though Whitney was the more senior teacher at that point, the principal made it clear to her, if we make the cuts, I'm going to make sure you go. And, you know, so she's asking us, please pray about this. Don't want to, don't want to lose my job. You know, I don't know how this is going to work out. And so sure enough, when the time came, she... The principal actually went around the board, bypassed the board entirely because the board would have released the, the less senior teacher and just fired Whitney on the spot one day. And so, you know, she's going, I don't know what I'm going to do because not only am I fired, but she's made it clear that she's going to give me a bad reference wherever I go. I mean, this can be a career ending kind of thing because anywhere you go in the school system, the person that you just worked for is going to be called, and she's made it real clear she's going to trash me with the other folks. So, you know, she applied for other jobs, absolutely just closed doors across the line. So God opens the door immediately for her to start working as a secretary of a roofing company. And it's like, what is up with that? I didn't go to school for four years to be a secretary in a roofing company, but she's like, God gave me the opportunity, and lo and behold, I'm getting paid more doing that than I was teaching school. So God is good. I'll just be the best secretary I can in a roofing company. So she's done that for months, but she's just had it in her heart. She wants to be back teaching first graders, and you know, she just confided into me a couple of weeks ago. She's like, well, Dad, I guess maybe my teaching career is over. I don't understand it. I want to be back with first graders, but 
it, I know everybody that I'm applying with. I'm getting these rejection letters, and they're, they're calling, and I know what, what kind of reference I'm getting. It's terrible, so I don't really know. I mean, how do you move forward with this? And I don't know. You just trust the Lord and keep going. And she called me last weekend and said, Dad, I can't believe this, but one of the schools that had sent me a rejection letter several months ago just called me, and they want to interview me on Tuesday. And so I said, we'll be praying for you for Tuesday. And she called me during the day this past Tuesday and said, you're not going to believe this. They hired me on the spot, and it is such, it's a school that people are dying to get into. It's so well-resourced and so popular. The kids love it, and they take good care of their teachers, and it's more money than I ever made at any job that I've ever had, and it's such a great environment. And, and I just thought, watching all that whole thing unfold, it's a picture of what we just read in Isaiah. You're going to face the fires of oppression in your life. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean God's mad at you. You will go through deep waters. You will pass through the fire. And the promise of God is just, I'll be with you. And the the flames won't consume you. And the waters won't overwhelm you. But it will be a little scary at times. And it will be confusing at times. But God will be with you. Some of you, you're in that in-between season, like what she went through in the last year, where you're going, why am I here? This is not where I wanted to be in life. I thought I'd be married and have 2.5 children and have a good income and everything would just be, you know, career on the on the rise right now. And that's not where I am. You may be passing through the waters right now. Hear the word of the Lord. I'll be with you. And the fire will not consume you. And the third and final thing that we've got to do when we're going through that is just announce our loyalty to God no matter what. Say it in your heart. Say it to the Lord. Say it to whoever will listen. Say what these young men said. God, regardless of how this turns out, I'm going to stay faithful to you. They said, even if God does not save us, we want you to know, King, that we refuse to serve your gods. We will not worship the gold idol that you have set up. Declare your loyalty to God. Make up your mind that you won't budge. Now, let's finish the story. Verse 19 goes on to say, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage because they didn't, they didn't follow him when they had the second chance. And now he's ticked at them. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before, he's hoping to, to lead them to do the smart thing, make the smart move, and now they won't, so he's mad. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. That's, that's a sign of an unhealthy person who's gotten ticked off. You know when people are really emotional, they'll do irrational things. This is an irrational act. A fiery furnace is, is quite sufficient to kill a human being, period. You don't need to heat it up seven times hotter. That's like saying, you know, I was going to just shoot you in the head once, but now I'm going to shoot you in the head seven times. Well, you know, you're pretty much dead no matter how many times you do it. It's, the point is, I'm going to kill you. Well, I'm going to kill you real bad this time. So he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego He shouldn't have chosen the best. He should have chosen the poorest because he's going to kill them in the process. Throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. Don't miss that. 
I mean, can, can you just appreciate this? He had to pick the best men, I guess, in his army because they'd probably be the only ones brave enough to get close enough to a fire that is so out of control that just to throw these guys into it is going to burn to death the brave soldiers who have hauled them in. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. I can imagine in that moment it was chaotic. The people who are watching, they're hearing screams of pain and they're just seeing, you know, bodies going up in flames because the soldiers who have thrown them in are being consumed. It just has to be a horrible scene. And just in that first moment, assume, well, there they go. These foolish young Jews, they learned their lesson. But then, verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Oh, yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. And he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Praise God. The three young men are not burned up. They are alive, they are loosed, and they are not alone. You know why they're not alone? Because God says, when you pass through the fires of oppression, I will be with you. I can tell you this. There was never a time in their lives when they were as close to God as when they were in the middle of the furnace. And that's the truth of life. There will never be a season when you will feel the nearness of God more in your life than when the fire is the hottest. It's easy in this room to raise our hands and to sing songs about how great is our God and He is and it's all true. But this isn't hard. We can go through the motions and fail to even experience God. But when you are in the hottest season of oppression in your life and Jesus draws near to make sure that you're protected, to make sure that you've got what you need to make sure you get through it, in every part of your being, you just know God is here. It, it's crazy. I mean, it, it's crazy how real it is. That you're in a place that you would give your right arm to not be in. You've been praying to God to spare you from this. And you're in it anyway. And yet it just feels like holy ground. Because God is here. I mean, I know I've said all of my life God's with me. But right now... He's just so here. And it changes everything. Suddenly sickness doesn't look overwhelming. Suddenly the thought of, what if I lose my marriage? What if my child is sick? What if I lose my job? We could lose the house. Suddenly those things just fade off into the distance. Because God is so present. I can only imagine... As these three young men are being hauled up to be thrown into the flames. That for just a moment, all they can see is the fire that looks like is about to consume them. And then all of a sudden, their attention is turned away from the fire to something that is more glorious than the glow of the flames. Because Jesus is on the scene. 
Nebuchadnezzar isn't even sure how to describe what he sees. We, we see the glow of the fire. We see these three young men. We, we can see their images. We can see that they're not bound anymore. But, but it's not three. It's four. And, and that fourth one don't look like the other three. That fourth one, there is something about him. There's a glory about him. I think a son of the gods is in the fire. You better know. Not a son of the gods. The son of God is in the fire. I want to tell you, when you follow Jesus and you pass through the fire, whether you see him with your eyes, the son of God is right there with you. Count on it. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace, a blazing fire, and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. Do you hear that change? Five minutes ago he was so mad he couldn't control himself. And now he's suddenly saying, Boys, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the king's advisors gathered around, they saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. There was no smell of fire on them. I can't grill a hamburger without needing a shower. I smell so bad of smoke. They went in the fiery furnace and didn't even smell like it. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that any one of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And then as a final word on the matter. And then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He elevated them in their position. That is a story that we'll preach. You want to talk about a changed life. The man is saying, you don't worship the one and only God of this land. I'm going to kill you. And five minutes later, he's going, anybody want to talk bad about one God, this God? I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going to take your house. I'm going to make a pile of rubble out of it. I'll kill your family. Don't you talk about their God. That is a change right there. Because that man saw How a true God, the living God, honors the lives of those who are faithful to Him. Who put their trust in Him. Now I'm almost out of time, so just very quickly I want to mention to you five things that you can bank on God to do when we put our trust in Him in the midst of of the furnace. The first one is what we've already alluded to. God will walk through the fire with me. It's the promise of Isaiah. It's just the promise of God to you. Whatever comes, I'll walk through the fire with you. I think of Paul when he's being carried to Rome as a prisoner in the book of Acts, near the very end of Acts. And they get caught in a hurricane. It's an unthinkable story. If you've ever been at sea, whenever a bad storm hits, it's it's a story that when you read it, you just can't fathom. Two weeks that hurricane drags them along. They just stay in the heart of the storm. The soldiers and the sailors on board despair of life. They go two weeks. They don't ever stop to even eat a meal. They they throw off everything you can throw off. They they are convinced that they're going to die. 
Paul's the only guy on board who's got his mind and his wits about him because the Lord's already told him, I'm going to make sure not only you, but everybody on this ship survives. And Paul's able to stay calm. He's able to go around and encourage the men. Says, Come on, guys, you need to eat. God's already said we're going to get through this. And they're like, what do you mean? You know, and Paul's like, it's going to be okay, guys. The Lord already spoke on this. They finally go aground and the ship's torn apart. And it's like, guys, just go ahead and grab something and get ashore. God said he's going to save us all. And they get ashore and it's still storming. And they build a fire. And as they're making a fire, a snake grabs hold of Paul, bites him on the arm. He just slings off in the fire and just goes right on. It's just Paul is a picture of this reality. He still had to go through the hurricane. He had to go through the shipwreck. Gets bitten by a snake building a fire for everybody. But you know what? The snake doesn't hurt him. It can't kill him. The storm can't kill him. The shipwreck can't kill him. Why? Because he knows God is with him. And he will be with you. Number two, this is part of the great news of this story. God will burn off whatever ties me down and will give me new freedom. That's what the fire will do. The king said, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? But he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire. They went in tied up. They came out loosed. God will do that in your life. Sometimes we don't realize it, but the very thing that we're stressing about, that we feel so much pressure and heat over, is the thing that's actually got us tied up. God, you gotta, you gotta make sure I don't lose this job. You gotta, you gotta somehow, you gotta work it out. You gotta make sure that I get to stay here. And sometimes we're gonna lose it, and only after the fact that we realize that was the thing that had us bound up in the first place. That He had something much better planned. We fall in love or in lust or something, and we get in a relationship, and oh, it's just the best thing that ever happened to us, and then it goes from the best thing to, well, it's kind of up and down in heaven and hell, all rolled into one relationship, and before long, it's more hell than heaven. And But oh, God, you just got to, I got to make sure I don't lose him, I don't lose her, I just, I can't live without him. And then God finally makes it happen, and it's just over. And only after the fact do you realize, I hated losing that love. But I only realized after the fact that was what had me bound in the first place. God was burning the ropes off of me when he got me out of that relationship. Sometimes you have to pass through the fire to get freed up from holds you bound. Now, some people, the thing, that, the, that's the ropes that get tied up is just fear. Just, just afraid of everything. Afraid of what's coming next. And the fire of oppression... The fire of difficulty, of pain, is the only way to ever get free from fear. Because when you walk through what you fear the most, and you see that God carries you through it, and not only do you survive it, but you thrive through it, and you come out stronger than you ever were before, you come out on the other side, you went into it all tied up, and you come out of it going, you, you were tied up by fear, and you come out of it going, what was I ever afraid of? And what will I ever be afraid of anymore? Because if that's the best devil can bring on and God was a whole lot bigger than that, then I'm not afraid of anything that's in front of me. And some of you know the reality of what I'm talking about. There were times in my life I used to be controlled by fear, and it isn't the case anymore. Some of the things that I feared worst in my life have happened, and I've seen that God is bigger than those things, and that life can be better even after I've lost what I never wanted to lose, what I couldn't imagine living without. And I see life can be so much better even past that. Suddenly you're freed from fear because you realize how much bigger God is than those losses. And that's the thing about pain, pain and loss. 
it'll never leave you where it found you. Pain will always take you somewhere else. Now, if you're trusting and following Christ, pain will take you to a better place. And if you're not, pain will take you to a worse place. It'll take you to a place called bitterness, anger, resentment, deeper fear. But pain's not going to leave you where it found you. God will use pain. In fact, Isaiah 48.10, he says, I've refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Psalm 66.12 says, You let captors set foot on our neck. That's never fun. We fire and water, and then you let us out to freedom. When you get past the thing that's bound you up, the freedom on the other side is, is joyous. Third thing you can count on God to do, God will protect me and bring me through it. These men didn't just have God with them in the fire. He brought them out the other side unharmed. And here's the thing you can rest in. If you are saved, the scripture says this, you are in Christ. You are literally in Christ. You, New Testament says it again and again. You've been placed in Christ. You are under his blood. So you can count on this. Whatever the world and the devil want to throw at you to try and hurt you, before it can get to you, it's got to come through Jesus and it's got to pass through the blood. And Jesus isn't going to let anything pass through him to get to you that's going to be too much or too bad. He's going to make sure that anything that's got to get to you is going to be something that he has already equipped you and going to carry you through. He's already equipped you for it. So we can know God's going to protect me through this. A lot of you have been very gracious and thoughtful and prayerful uh, for me and for Jackie in the last five or six months. And I appreciate that so much. I've shared with you um, just some health issues and and health questions, which are still unresolved and unanswered for us. That's been uh, kind of frustrating, but... And I haven't tried to, the fact that I haven't alluded to it much in a long time is not an attempt to be evasive. It's just been, the doctors haven't had good answers. They've run all kinds of tests that haven't given clear answers. And my blood work still stays really screwy. And so they're not sure what to do trying to to come up with some answers this week as to whether to go off to uh, have things examined. The only reason I pause to to tell you that is just to say, first of all, thanks for, for praying and trusting the Lord with us in this. But... This point I'm talking about, that God will protect me and bring me through it, that's exactly where we're living. And I want to tell you, there's tremendous peace in that. We're, we're not afraid and we're not losing sleep over this. I feel so confident that God's already spoken over this situation. I feel like Paul in the middle of, of the hurricane on the ship, that um, if you just you know looked at circumstances and some of the tests, that it, should, it, it could alarm you or make you have all kinds of doubts or, or fears, but we don't feel those at all because we feel like the, the bottom line is what God says about this and God's already said, I'm going to bring you through it. Now, he didn't, he didn't give a detailed report of how he's going to bring us through it. He didn't say how fast or what is or is not going to be involved. That's okay because he's with us and he's given us a picture of the outcome. And so thanks for just trusting God with us in that and we look forward to a positive outcome. And I, So it's, it's fun to see God make this real. Number four, it'll bring unbelievers to God. Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of this. He was a pagan who wanted people to worship him. And in a matter of five minutes of watching these young men pass through the fire, he suddenly was reminded of who the true God is. 
It's just a reminder that the world is watching you. And the fact that you and I came to church this morning isn't going to lead anybody to Jesus. There's nobody in your neighborhood that when you go home after lunch today is going to go, you know, I was an unbeliever, but after seeing you go to church today, I now believe in Jesus. Ain't going to happen. But I tell you what does happen in life. People that you don't even know are watching you or who you've never considered are really paying attention. When you pass through the fire and you're facing circumstances that would freak the world out. And instead of freaking out, you're trusting God and you're being faithful to him and you're declaring the goodness of the Lord even when things don't look so good. When other people would have said, curse God and die. The world watches that, and they see God come through in your life in that season and go, there is a God, and I want what that person has. I want to know their God, and the Lord will use that powerfully in other people's lives. How we handle pain and loss is our biggest testimony. I'll tell you just a neat illustration from nature really quickly. Did you know that that there are some trees that grow in America that can only reproduce after a fire kind of weird isn't it I'll, I'll name a couple of them for you um, one of them grows in New England it's called a jack pine jack pines when they drop their cones they have seeds in them just like any pine tree we have in the south but they're, they're bound up so tightly by the resin they cannot release those seeds to reproduce new pines unless a forest fire comes through and heats them up to the point that it burns off that resin then they'll drop their seeds and new pines will come up there has to be a fire before new pines can be born. The redwoods of Northern California are the same way. They are the largest living things on planet Earth. They'll live to be up to 2,000 years old, grow 400 feet high, but when they drop their cones, they cannot reproduce unless fire passes through, heats them up, and releases the seeds to be able to reproduce. And that's so true. It's a picture. God loves to use pictures in nature of realities in, in our lives. It's hard to reproduce what Christ has done in you, Unless people see a fire pass through in your life. Fifth and final thing God will do. God will reward my faith in him. God did here. He promoted these young men. And when we stay faithful to him through the fire, there are tangible rewards that are going to come as a result of that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that each of us are builders. It's like we're architects and we are building over the course of our lives for what we're going to experience for all of eternity. I mean, you realize this is the dress rehearsal. This is short term on earth. We're going to live for eternity. And he says, how you live your life and what you do here is building the life that you'll have for all of eternity. But he says in 1 Corinthians 3, of course, the foundation, the only foundation that lasts is the foundation of Jesus that you have to build on. If you don't have your faith in Christ, you have no foundation at all. But for all of us who are in Christ, he says, unfortunately, some are building their lives with things like wood, hay, and straw. And others are building for what they're going to have for all of eternity out of gold, silver, and precious stones. What he's referring to is, in heaven, it's not going to be the same for everybody. It's not going to be one big worship service for the next 30 zillion years. We all just sit around and sing praise songs. That is not heaven. Heaven's going to involve work and responsibility, leadership and fellowship. There's going to be a lot involved in heaven. And there are going to be great rewards and lesser rewards, greater responsibility and lesser responsibility. And he says, the test of what you're going to do for all of eternity is going to be a passing through the fire to see if what you have built lasts. And he says, I put it in your outline here, but each of you must be careful how you build your lives. The quality of each person's work will be seen when the day of Christ exposes it. This is the day of judgment. For on that day, fire will reveal everyone's work. The fire will test and show its quality. 
If what he what was built on the foundation survives the fire, the builder will receive a reward. But if your work is burned up, then you will lose it. But you yourself will be saved as if you had escaped through the fire. This isn't about losing your salvation. It's just about the fact fire at the final judgment is going to test your work. And some people are going to look like, oh, they were such great spiritual giants on earth. But at the final judgment, some of that's just going to be consumed. And those who truly were faithful to Christ, their work's going to be revealed. And there's going to be a great reward for those who trusted Christ even through the hard things. So I want to conclude with a simple question where are you feeling the heat and the pressure in your life right now what's got you tied up what's putting the heat on you right now are you trusting Christ with that would you be willing to today as we turn to him together in prayer right now God I thank you that you are faithful and that you always walk with us through the good days and the most difficult days of life I pray that today you'd speak in very personal ways in our lives and that you'd give gifts of faith that we'd be able to trust you. Maybe you have have yet to experience firsthand what it's like to be in Christ and to have God with you through any part of life. Maybe you've known that God was watching over you, but he's not in you to be with you because you haven't yet stepped across the line into a personal relationship with him. He'd love for you to do that. He's inviting you to do that today. Why don't you just, if that's what you want to do, would you just silently in your heart pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I want you and I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your protection and your power living in me. Would you please forgive my sins? Would you change my heart? Would you take control of my life? The best I know how, I give you all of me, past, present, and future. Thank you for forgiving me and saving me. God, I thank you for hearing and answering that prayer. For others, maybe you're walking through a season where you really need to see God come through, where you need to feel his nearness in your life. Would you call on him now and just ask him to do that? God, would you be with me? Would you give me strength? Would you give me wisdom to know how to follow you and how to be faithful to you through the next season. He's promised he'll be faithful to give wisdom. Lord, we trust you. We trust you with the good days and the hard days. And we thank you for your love. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, We would love the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.